Welcome, brothers and sisters, as we look at God's uh, word for us in Matthew chapter 5, a very challenging word, but also a word that has uh, hope for us in it. Jesus said just before this passage in Matthew that he had not come to abolish the law of God. He hadn't come to do away with it, but rather to fulfill it. And the law of God is like signposts on the road to life. Sure, I think so. (laughs) Signposts on the road to life. Jesus talks... uh, Actually, sorry, in the Old Testament reading, we hear that choice between life and death. Following God and obeying his commandments leads to life. Rejecting God and going for um, different gods, idols, idolatry leads to death. So Jesus here in Matthew 5 is talking about signposts on the road to life. And I need to just give us a little bit of a map as we go Uh, through today um, because there's a lot of complex stuff here that's going on that I think it's really important to have in view as we uh, go on the road to life. Sorry for looking at my notes here. uh... God's law is the road to life. And just like civil laws, like speeding uh, Restrictions, or what are some of the other laws that, that kind of impact our lives on a, on a regular basis? Okay, yep, 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 that's good. Anything else? Lots of things. Those things are not there to make our lives miserable. They're actually there to preserve and protect and enhance human life. So God's law is not just a set of arbitrary rules from some kind of cosmic moral policeman who's looking at us and going, I don't want you to have any fun, so I'm going to make these rules that you have to obey. No, God's law is God's good will for humanity and for human society. The laws of God, when we look into them uh, more deeply, are actually about human flourishing. This is the way that things work best in the world and the universe in which we live. Okay, take the stealing one, right? If there wasn't a law against stealing, if if people could just do that, imagine the chaos that would ensue. In fact, that that happens sometimes, doesn't it, when um, an illness or a major natural disaster happens and you get looters. You get people who are just coming in to take what they can get. Now, it's important to realise that God's word speaks to us in two distinct ways. There's the law, which is God's commands. It's everything that God requires of us. And then there's the gospel. This is God's promises. This is everything that God does for us and has done for us through Jesus. Now, this is going to be important as we unfold what Jesus is talking about here. God's law works in three main ways. The uh, Lutheran reformers taught this. The first one is like a fence. I, I'm, I had lots of cool pictures in my PowerPoint, but 
Just imagine a fence at the edge of a cliff, right? The, the aim of the fence is to protect and preserve life. Does that make sense? I recently went for a walk down Cape Shank. I was on year 12 retreat um, a week or so ago. And there used to be just a clifftop walk that you could walk down the edge of Cape Shank um, to, to the beach, a very beautiful place in the world. Now there's fences everywhere. You can't just walk wherever you like. You've got to stay on the boardwalk. And you could get annoyed at that and go, they've ruined my fun. But actually, the aim of that is to protect and enhance and preserve life. So that's the first one. And the... Um, the way that the, 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 law work, the law works in terms of a fence is it is to protect. The main function of that uh, use of the law is to protect. The second way that God's law works is as a mirror. And this one is going to be in play quite a lot today. The mirror shows us what we are really like. The mirror holds up to us an image of God's commands and demands, and how we fall short of them. And the main purpose of the function of law, the second function, the mirror, is to convict. So when I look at God's law, when I hear what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5, it hits me very hard that I do not live up to these standards. It convicts me that I am not living the way that God wants me to live. Does that make sense? Yep. And as we listen to Jesus' words, I'm sure that each of us at some point will be deeply convicted by what Jesus says and go, I'm not living like that. And it will happen at different points for each of us. The third one is like a signpost. And the main function of the signpost is to actually guide us in terms of what it is like to live on the road to life. So it points us in the right direction. And as people of God who belong to Jesus, it actually helps us to know God's goodwill and his shape for our life. Make sense so far? Okay. I haven't got into the gospel text yet because I think it's important to lay the groundwork for some of these things. Now, the, the title of my sermon was going to be The Road to Life with a Brief, brief Detour Via Hell. So that's where I'm going to go now. This is my brief detour via hell. Jesus talks about a word that is translated as hell in our Bibles. That word is actually Gehenna. And I had a lovely picture that I could have showed you. Um, you've, you've probably maybe seen this one. Um, you might be able to see it if I hold it up. Caution, this sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. And then in very small letters down the bottom, it says, also, the bridge is out ahead. When Jesus speaks of hell, it's very much like this sign, because in our Western world, we are very uncomfortable with talk of hell and talk of judgment. Even as Christians, we're quite uncomfortable with the idea of a judging God who would send people to hell. So it's very easy to miss the main point of what Jesus is saying here by going, caution, this sign has sharp edges. I don't like hell. I don't like the idea of judgment. I don't like the idea of hell. So therefore, I won't really listen to what Jesus is saying. But the bridge is out ahead. 
That's what, that's what Jesus is really saying here. He's saying Gehenna was the Valley of Hinnom. It was a valley outside of Jerusalem, and it was basically the city garbage dump. It's where the animal carcasses and the human waste and all of the burning, stinking rubbish of a large city's population ended up in the Valley of Hinnom. It was the rubbish dump of Jerusalem. Okay, so when Jesus talks about the word that is here translated hell, he's using the word Gehenna, the rubbish dump of Jerusalem. But we go back even a step further and we find that the reason that the Valley of Hinnom ended up this way was because earlier on, the kings of Israel conducted idolatrous worship in the Valley of Hinnom. In fact, they went so far as to sacrifice children in the Valley of Hinnom. So Gehenna is where idolatry and dehumanization end up. When we read Jesus' words here in Matthew, in danger of the fires of hell, he's saying, if you keep going down this road, your life will end up on the rubbish dump. If you keep walking away from God, it will end up like the Valley of Hinnom, the stinking, burning, festering garbage dump of the world. And so Jesus is using imagery here that all of his listeners would have understood, but that because of centuries and centuries of kind of medieval overlay about hell and God torturing people and all that kind of thing, we find it hard to understand. So when Jesus says, for instance, um, if whoever says to his brother, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of Gehenna, anyone who keeps living this way is in danger of having their life end up on the garbage dump. So Jesus is talking about something very real and very serious. This is the ultimate end of walking away from God. But Jesus is also using imagery which is not like our pictures of hell that have come down to us. So there's something serious here, very serious, but it's not necessarily literal. We can be separated from God. We can be separated from all that is good. We can be separated from life. And that's Gehenna. Okay, that's my brief detour via hell. Um, There's actually a lovely video clip with two Christian um, authors who are in hell. They're walking through the Valley of Hinnom. And it's now a lovely place where you go and have a picnic with your family on a Saturday afternoon, Sunday afternoon. Okay, now that we've done the map, let's have a look at what Jesus actually says. Feel free to interact with me here too. Yep, yep, we'll get there. there? Yeah, I will, hopefully. Okay, Um, can someone with a Bible, anyone who is able to read, um, I'll, I'll give a few more out. Uh, Let's have a look at the first one. Jesus is here contrasting um, a couple of things. Contemptuous anger and the ethic of reconciliation. Can someone read Matthew 5, 21 to 24? Yeah, I've got it. You have heard that it 
that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be judged subject, oh, who is angry with a brother or sister will be judged subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, be answerable to the court. And anyone who says... I believe that Jesus is not just talking about anger because anger in itself is neutral. It's not bad or good. It's an emotion. It is. But he's talking about contemptuous anger, the kind of anger that, that causes someone to think in their heart, you're an idiot. You are not worth anything. You're useless, that kind of thing. Does that make sense? And, and the contrast here that Jesus gives is contemptuous anger versus the ethic of reconciliation. If you continue to live this way, Jesus says, you will be in danger of ending up with your life on the garbage dump. But Jesus actually says that instead, as God's people, we are to pursue an ethic of reconciliation. Jesus actually says that if your brother or sister has something against you, it is more important to reconcile with them first before worshipping God. If you have something and you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember right then that your brother or sister has something against you, Jesus says, go and be reconciled. Then you can come back and offer your gift at the altar. Contemptuous anger dehumanizes both us and the person who is on the receiving end of it, doesn't it? It makes them not a person anymore in our eyes. And it's, it's really like murdering someone in our heart. Murder in the heart. So Jesus is really getting to the heart here because most often murder starts with a kind of a contempt for a person and not seeing them as they really are. And Jesus is getting right to the heart here. If we think about the ethic of reconciliation, this is what Jesus was on about his whole life. This is why he came in order to reconcile us to God. He left the glory of heaven and came to earth in order that we could be reconciled with God when we were still his enemies. Next, we have Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Can someone read those verses for us? You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. One who looks at a woman lustfully, already committed adultery, is heart. Like I causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. Better for you to lose one whole body to go with it. Jesus is here talking about lust and its ultimate outcome, adultery. But Jesus says that lust is really adultery of the heart. And he's contrasting this with an ethic of purity. Jesus is using hyperbole here. He's allowed to do that. He's giving us an exaggerated statement of what to do to avoid this dehumanizing thing which will eventually lead to having our lives on the garbage dump. Right? I don't see many Christians, and nor should we, who've actually literally cut off their right hand or gouged out their right eye. Even a blind man can lust. 
Lust is about looking at someone just for what you can get out of them. And again, lust dehumanizes. It dehumanizes both the person who is committing the lust and the person who is on the end of that. How does, how does that happen? How, how does it dehumanize people? Demeans. Reduces them to an object, absolutely, yeah. Demeans them, them. yeah. Absolutely. And how does it dehumanise the person who's engaging in that? Just thinking about it is as bad as doing it. Why not go the whole hog? Well, this is what Jesus is saying, right? The heart is the real issue, isn't it? Yeah. And we are surrounded today by a culture of pornography and of sexualization. And so lust for all of us is a big, big problem. We're presented with opportunities all the time. But Jesus wants to get at the heart. He wants to change our heart so that we have an ethic of purity. Remember just back a little bit, if you were here a few Sundays ago, where Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. When you are pure in heart, you can look at another person and see not what you want to get out of them, but the image of God in that person. And so when Jesus says, cut off your hand or or gouge out your eye, he's saying, do whatever it takes not to fall into this trap. And it's a big trap for many of us. The pure in heart will see God. Those who follow the path of lust will end up with their lives on the garbage dump. Absolutely. Because someone has access in the real world to be able to do what mm-hmm. of, of, yep. Um, yep, that's a really good point. You know, they might not be able to do it, but whole selling of, of yep. image, selling of, uh, selling of desire. If yep. Um, mm. um, that, it, that brings them down. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, too. yes, yep. So lust is about false intimacy, right? Cheap intimacy. Purity is about true intimacy, which also costs. Um, And God wants true intimacy with us. Okay, there's lots to cover. I could probably do a sermon on each of these uh, topics, but we'll keep on going. Matthew 5, 31 to 32. Can someone read that for us? But I tell you that anyone who divorces you except for sexual morality, whether the victim of adultery marries a divorce and commits adultery. And first... I think that's it. No. So Jesus is here talking about divorce versus the ethic of fidelity. Divorce treats God's good gift of marriage as if it's not important. Now, it's very, very... We've got to be very careful here because in all of these issues, the law strikes us and we go, for those of us who've been through divorce, how how can I ever be okay then? If, if, If that's what I've done, if that's what Jesus is saying, that's the same is true for lust though, right? Jesus says anyone who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I haven't been divorced, but I fall into that other one all the time. So there's no levels here. We're all at the foot of the cross. But divorce dehumanizes a person 
and people as well. And I'm sure that you've all seen this, or if you've been through it, you've experienced it. You've seen friends who've gone through a divorce where each person loses their humanity in the other person's eyes. Jesus doesn't want that to happen. He wants um, Christians to uphold the ethic of fidelity. And for, for single Christians, that means celibacy outside of marriage. For married Christians, it means working at that marriage relationship. And for the church as a whole, it means encouraging and supporting people who are married to work through the tough times and the difficulties and the things that happen so that the ethic of fidelity can be upheld. Remember, Jesus is not saying everyone who gets divorced can never receive God's grace. He's talking about the humanity and dehumanization that happens, the choice between life and death, between people being human and people being things or enemies here. And the last one, um, oaths. And then we will have a law and gospel reprise of it. So um, Matthew five thirty-three to 36. Someone? Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the laws the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of where by your head. All you need to say is yes or no. Okay, so Jesus here is talking about dishonesty or oaths versus the ethic of radical honesty. Actually, we could say radical integrity. And I won't say a great deal about this one, but um, Jesus is uh, saying, you know, even your speech should have integrity. Even the things that you say should be an integral part of who you are. Um, dishonesty leads to so much problem, doesn't it? Like so many problems in our world. Um, when I am dishonest with you or when I swear to you that something is true, you know, the check is in the mail, Mark. I posted it yesterday. I, I guarantee it. <laughs> you know, that one's probably a bit out of date these days, isn't it? But Jesus is saying, let yourself be a person of radical integrity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Because if, if you need me to swear that I have done something in order to believe me, what does that say about me when I don't swear, swear to it? Right? You can't trust what I say if I'm not a person of radical integrity. Um, I could have unfolded these a lot more, but um, hopefully the sermon outline that I will send through will um, help you understand a bit more. Okay. Jesus says in Matthew 5, and I need my glasses, but I think I'll be all right. Just before this passage, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything 
is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you're anything like me, right now, as a giant mirror looking at me because of Jesus' words, saying, I haven't lived up to that. You know, I don't, I'm not on the road to life, not all the time, not if I'm honest with myself. But Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The difference between law, which is good, but we are not, and we can't fulfill it, and gospel, which is also good, is this. The difference between do and done. The law is about what you have to do. It is God's goodwill for us to do those things. The gospel is about what Jesus has already done and what he freely gives to you as a gift. Jesus has already fulfilled the law. He has gone on the road to life. And he offers that forgiveness, that reconciliation, that honesty, that true humanity to each of us through what he has done. He has fulfilled the law for us. And I spoke several times about Jesus getting to the heart. No, that's where sin starts and is located. But the only person who can do God's law is a person whose heart has been renewed by Jesus through his forgiveness, through his radical honesty, through his purity, through his fulfillment of all of God's law for us, which Jesus offers to you. So if you're seeing the mirror and you're feeling really bad, that's okay. It's okay to feel bad. It's true. But also remember what Jesus has done for you that he has fulfilled the law for you in order to change your heart so that you can do God's will with joy. Amen.